Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. Margot Price is no stranger to struggle. In early March, a tornado raged through her home base of Nashville just as she was preparing to release her third album. A month later, as Tennessee residents were ordered to shelter in place to prevent the spread of COVID-19, Margot's husband and longtime collaborator, Jeremy Ivey, tested positive for the coronavirus. While taking care of her sick husband and two young kids, Margot decided to push back the release of her new album. It may seem like a no-brainer, but for Margot, it was a really tough decision. And with her simultaneously not being able to be on the road like she usually is right now, things in her life just feel a bit upside down. But Margot Price is a gifted songwriter who always manages to turn adversity into a great song. In the past, she's written her way through personal devastation like the loss of a family farm and the death of an infant son. Her new album, That's How Rumors Get Started, pulls from that same well. But musically, owes a debt to more carefree rock music like The Stones, Tom Petty, and Fleetwood Mac. In this interview, Margot tells Bruce Headlam how playing an open mic at a Best Western hotel made her a better songwriter. She also talks about hawking her wedding ring to record her first album, and how spending a weekend in jail was all the inspiration she needed to refocus her career. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Headlam and Margot Price, who connected recently on Zoom. So you've been at home with your two kids now for two months? Yes, yeah, 66 days. 
I'm one of the psychopaths still keeping track. Who's counting? (laughs) (laughs) Well, my son was asking the other day, so I sat down and, and did the math. And your husband got sick in the middle of all this, didn't he? He did, yeah. Your husband, who's also uh, your co-songwriter and, you know, yeah. a great musician. Yeah, um, partner in crime. How is he now? He is still not fully recovered, but slowly getting better every day. Mm-hmm. It's been a long, it's been a long road. And yeah. I'm just glad that he is not going into the hospital and we've been able to treat it here. He's been doing like nebulizer treatments, the breathing treatments and sleeping 12 hours a day, taking a lot of vitamins, drinking a lot of water. Just there's nothing you can do. So you go into the emergency room and then they just are like, yep, we hope you make it. We're just going to send you home now because you're not bad enough to admit and we can't really give you anything. So they gave him like an inhaler and wished him luck. Yeah. And you've had to, you've had to postpone releasing your new album, which is what we're here to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have to, I just, everything came on so quickly and I thought, okay, well, we'll be able to tour this summer. So I'm just going to push it back a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then I've finally came to the realization that like, no, there's not going to be tours for probably the whole entire year. And so now I'm just focusing on getting it out. But at the beginning of quarantine, we had just been hit by the tornado. Our friend John Prine died and Jeremy got sick and all those things combined, plus having two small children at home. I just, I couldn't properly release a record. I didn't have any, like any more music videos to put out. I didn't really have any content to work with. Mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned John Prine, who's, you know, at the head of the list of great musicians who've been lost to this. You know, there's a terrific version online of you doing Unwed Fathers with him. Uh, when did you first meet him? I met John on his 70th birthday at the Ryman. And I was asked to come sing In Spite of Ourselves and Unwed Fathers with him. And um, it was just really surreal because I been a student of his songwriting for decades and he was so down to earth and so nice and funny and real i just feel like there's very few people that remain that grounded throughout that kind of success and and he was one of the realest people i i ever had the pleasure to meet still kind of doesn't seem like he's gone because we're not seeing anybody mm-hmm. so i just kind of feel like I'm going to see him down the road, but every once in a while, it kind of like clicks that, you know, and you remember it. Yeah. Just such a loss. Yeah. I mean, you guys, it, you have the same tendency, I think, particularly in, in sad songs. You, you both come up with uh, the kind of perfect image, you know, riding high and low expectations and, um, why don't you do the math, pay gap, <laughs> ripping my dollars in half? Uh, you know, there are things uh, you can't turn money back into time, which is a line I just love. Those lines sound like John Prine lines to me. Do you, did, have you ever sat down and said, yeah, I'm going to write a John Prine song? Or is this, is this just, is that just Midwestern sensibility? 
Uh, well, that's very high praise, and I, I thank you for that. I don't, I don't think I've come close to to his greatest works in any capacity, but um, I definitely have, you know, studied what he's done. And I just, the thing that I love about John is that he uses his entire vocabulary, and he's not afraid to use quirky, strange words that most people would think were too ugly to put into a song, mm. you know? And my husband and I actually wrote and uh, recorded a couple summers ago, an album that we shelved and it was a psychedelic gospel record. And I think on that album, I was, you know, really trying to mimic his work because we had been on the road with him a lot. And, um, and of course I haven't put that out yet, but there's a couple like songs that are floating around out there on YouTube. Um, one's called the devil's in the details. And I, I played that acoustic for John and he, he told me that he really liked that song and mm -hmm. that was the uh, highest compliment I ever got really. Uh, you're so good at those kind of lines. I'm just wondering, and what, I'm jumping ahead because we'll talk about songwriting more, but do those lines kind of emerge and then you think that's a great line. I'm going to put that in a song at some point. Are they just things in a notebook that, that find their way in or do they emerge while you're writing the song? Some of them just emerge as I'm writing the song. Can't turn money back to time. That was something that happened like while I was strumming and um, my husband and I were kind of, I had written most of the song and then we talked through a little bit of that chorus and we like, it just clicked at that point. But I do tend to find lines like that and make a note of them or like if somebody in the room says something that's really witty i'm like okay I'm just, you're not going to write a song about that and i'll, I'll write it down <laughs> like well yeah the, the the album title uh that's how rumors get started that actually was something my guitar player said in the bus when we were drunk one night and i just was like i'm taking it <laughs> all right nice Actually, that one. Now that I'm thinking about it, that that line, um, you can't you can't turn money back into time. What's the line after that? Take it from me, darling of mine. Yeah, that's what makes that line that there's such a shift in the take it from me, darling. That that to me is just uh, you know how everybody remembers the first line of Hallelujah. They say there was a secret chord David played. Yeah. What makes it is the second line, which is. But you don't really care yeah. about music, do you? Which I think is that oh, I know, I got people always leave off that. And that's just, that's the killer. And I, when I heard that, I know, but when I heard that song, that's what I thought of. <sighs> well, I wanted, you know, I had written Hands of Time long ago. And I remember this woman in North Carolina, she said, she was an old family friend, this old hippie lady. And she was all drunk one night. She's like, you got to write a song for your other kid. <laughs> and I said, uh, okay, I, I will. And so that was me kind of writing like a, a note to him, like, you know, when I'm gone on the road, but also when I die. And I've been thinking so much of, of that line as I'm home these last couple months, like, okay, well, here's your time. You know, <laughs> I'm not bringing in money, but I have time and I'm really trying to enjoy it and savor it. So I mentioned you and John Prine were both Midwesterners, ended up in Nashville. Uh, where were you born? I was born in a town called Rock Island, but my folks 
always lived in Alito, Illinois. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, west of Chicago is just how I explain it. And um, the town had 3,700 people in it. And it gets smaller every year. More and more people move away because there's less opportunity. And just a really desolate area i mean after the 80s farm crisis and how things have kind of continued to go with corporate farms and it's a great place but i just i don't think i could ever live there because it's it's a hard way of life i think for a lot of people how did music start then for you i think because there was nothing to do it felt like such a important lifeline in my life you know my father always had the oldies station on and so there was a lot of like classic rock and he always liked to play the dad game in the car that was like you know who this is that's the Beatles you know who this that's Carol King you know and he wanted to like school me on that's Rod Stewart so it annoyed me and I didn't like that music at first but then it really started to grow on me. Was there a was there a particular song or a particular moment that it really hit you musically? I I loved Tom Petty songs. I loved like you know American Girl and a lot of those songs. I, I felt like he was talking directly to me, and he made it seem like it was like okay to be from Middle America, like a small town, and be a nobody. He like romanticized it in a way that I really appreciated. And in school, we still had some good programs. Like I, in fourth and fifth grade, um, we did like these show choir things that, you know, singing and dancing. And in fourth grade, the theme that year was like country music. And so I got my first little solo to Patsy Klein walking after midnight. And um, I, I did, you know, kind of start at that point to enjoy country music more. I wasn't always sold on what was on the radio, but my, my grandmother, she played a lot of the old stuff for me, like Mm -hmm. Loretta and and Dolly and Johnny Cash. And that was cooler to me than even the nineties country. There's still some nineties country that's like, okay, you know, and now it's like obviously having a big resurgence, but I, my heart is in across the board, whether it's rock and roll or country music, it's like the sixties and seventies. Right. Yeah. Now I'm. Always, it's always funny to me when people are like, you know, I like the old stars, like Garth Brooks. I'm like, <laughs> Garth Brooks. You know, you know, like I thought you meant like, you know, Ray Price or Merle Haggard or something. You know. Exactly. We'll be back with Margot Price. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to three percent daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire 
with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with Margot Price. So when you decided to become a musician, I mean, you could have gone to Los Angeles or New York. You, you chose Nashville. And why was that? Well, I, I wanted to go to Los Angeles and I wanted to go to New York. And I think my parents were just terrified to let me go that far away from them. Mm-hmm. You know, just being 19 years old and fearless and you know very trustworthy and I, I came to visit um I had a cousin living here in Nashville and she's like I swear it's not all you know cheesy country music because at that time I just wasn't into any really a lot of the music being made on you know top 40 radio or country radio I just I didn't feel like I was going to fit in but um I came on my spring break of my sophomore year of college. And she took me down to like rock block, which has like exit in and the end and all these cool, like rock clubs and went to the spring water and just, you know, lots of grungy dive bars Mm -hmm. that 
I, I kind of started like going to these open mics and going to shows at Mercy Lounge and Cannery. And I thought, okay, I can, I could live here. And I dropped out of college and, and moved here just two months after I visited. Now, how long had you been writing songs by that point? Well, I started writing just poems and, and making like acapella demos when I was, I don't even know, maybe seven years old or something. Wow. And then around that time too, my mom put me into piano lessons. And so I took piano for several years. And then with my eighth grade graduation money, I bought a Japanese guitar. (laughs) Bought a Samick guitar. My parents were like, we really think that you should buy a computer for your schoolwork. And I was like, well, I had my eye on this guitar. (laughs) And I immediately started learning how to play chords and learning how to play songs, just kind of self-teaching. That was, that was when I really got bit by the bug. I'd say like 13, 14. And you did have an uncle who was a songwriter in Nashville. Yes. Bobby Fisher, who wrote uh, You Lie for Reba McIntyre. He has written so many songs. He's still writing songs and he's in his 80s and just sharp as ever. Um, He sent me a song last week that I'm going to try to put put some music to if I can find five seconds to pick up my guitar. but he, I mean, he wrote for George Jones. He wrote for uh, Charlie Pride, Tanya Tucker. He's He was just really driven and also came from the middle of nowhere and got a start later in life. So it was inspiring to see that. And we'd come down to go to Florida and we'd always stop in Nashville and stay at his house. And I'd like look at his gold records on the wall and you know he had stories about garth brooks and stuff then too he, that's who he was hanging out with it's like reba and garth and all the top nashville cats at the time right wow did you did you play your stuff for him i did um when i first moved down here i think you know my mom thought it was going to be easy to like connect the dots like oh you go to your uncles and you play him your cute songs and he's just going to find you a record label and you know manager and <laughs> plug you in with the right people and I went over to his house and we went in his writing room and he's like all right we'll see what you got he sits there and I tune up and I played him a song that I wrote it was called no love lost and I thought it was pretty decent and played him two other songs and he just sat there in complete silence stared at me and he's like well this is what you need to do you need to go to your apartment, you need to get rid of your TV, get rid of your computer, and you just need to sit and just keep writing songs. Just write a song every day and you'll figure it out. And that tough love like hurt so much because I knew, I mean, he didn't say, he didn't say, well, I like this, but I don't like this. I mean, he basically was just like, just keep trying. <laughs> and uh, so I, like I said, I was going to all these like open mic writer's nights and one that I was going to pretty frequently I'd go almost every week it was it was the best western and there was a bar in there that was called the hall of fame lounge and there was never really a wait like to play and there was a lot of good unknown you know I didn't know who a lot of these writers were and 
I assume that, you know, not many of them had a lot of cuts because they were just playing in the, <laughs> in the hotel bar. But, but, uh, I made friends with some of the like older pickers there and, you know, I was hanging out with like 60 year olds as a 20 year old and they buy me drinks and, um, kind of would sit and swap stories and I'd get advice. And I was really just studying the crowd's reaction to like everybody who played like, okay, well, why did everybody laugh and like clap for this guy? But nobody, nobody reacted when, you know, the next person played. And I think at that point, you know, I was just trying to get my head around like, what is a good song? There has to be humor, darkness, a lesson, but not too many cliches that, you know, all these things started kind of firing off. And, and that is where I really um, began to study, you know, what makes a song good. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in retrospect, uh, your uncle gave you great advice. Oh, without a doubt. But it must have hurt at the time. I cried. I called my mom. I was like, I don't know if I should be here. <laughs> he said my songs weren't good. She's like, did he say that? I'm like, well, no, but I'm reading between the lines. <laughs> and uh, he's really proud of me now, though. And he's very complimentary. And he's always sending me different articles and um, telling me stories. He's got this guitar that just everybody has like tattooed this guitar with, he has like a tattoo gun and you etch your name in it. And the day that he asked me to sign that guitar, I really felt like I'd accomplished something. Oh, amazing. Um, there are two things I do want to ask you about from your early days, which is, did you really hawk your wedding ring so you could make your first album? I did. Wow. I got it back. I got it back mm -hmm. um, at the, at the last minute, but um, yeah, there was, we sold a ton of music gear, a lot of cool microphones and reel-to-reel -reel machine. And of course, my husband sold the car, which I thought he was absolutely nuts for doing. But once he did that, I was like, okay, well, let's just try to get as big of a budget as we can and do this right. Because I didn't want to do another Kickstarter. I had done that. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to ask anybody for money. I didn't have anybody I could ask for money. I'd already begged my way out of multiple <laughs> problems at that point. So there, yeah, that was seemed like the only option um, at the time. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is after you did your first album, you signed with uh, Jack White's company. Mm -hmm. um, how did that come about? Because you'd gone through a lot of rejection. Yeah. I sent that album out to probably 50 record labels, but I had this write-up in Rolling Stone. We did a video in a hotel room for Since You Put Me Down, and Rolling Stone wrote it up, and they said, sounds like Jack White produced Loretta Lynn. So I always wonder if that's how it got on his radar, but my pedal steel player, Luke Schneider, he told me, that Ben Swank was interested in hearing my record. And Ben is, you know, Jack's right-hand man. And so I sent it to him and he was like, oh, this is good. Okay, I'm coming to a show. And he came out to a show at the Basement East. And I heard he was there like afterwards. And I was like, I can't go talk to him. I'm too nervous. I don't, 
I don't want to go talk to him. My friend Amanda was like, no, come on. I know him. He's super nice. He's really down to earth. And I went out there and he was like kind of slurring his speech. And he, he was just really drunk. <laughs> he's been a, he's sober now. He's one of my very best friends. And I'm so grateful that he came out and, and watched our, watched us perform, liked the record, was very instrumental in everything coming together. I don't want to talk too much about your early Nashville days because you've written about it so beautifully. Your first album starts with the hands of time, which is like um, a memoir that would take somebody else 300 pages. It takes you six minutes. Um, Are all your songs still that autobiographical? Um, I, I think this third album that I am putting out here is, it is still autobiographical, but there's other elements of like, I don't know, that really could be more about anybody else. And, and some songs have, you know, it's like I, I wrote them to multiple people, if that makes sense. Like right. that's how rumors get started. It's not just to like one of my friends that didn't make it. It's to like multiple friends that are kind of struggling and like, caught in their same bad habits and there, and then there's um like i'd die for you that that's definitely you know jeremy and i's relationship mm-hmm. based off of that letting me down jeremy and i we each wrote a verse and we wrote to both of us wrote to different people in our past that we went to high school with oh. that um you know we had different experiences with both of them but like his friend was a a burnout drug addict who like joined the army and he wrote it to that friend and I wrote it to a friend of mine who'd been raped and had a really tough childhood and so we kind of we wrote them towards different people and then worked on the chorus together so it's each each one's different we'll be back with more Margot Price snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know the fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new data-driven way 
to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with the rest of Bruce's conversation with Margot Price. So you switched labels on this one, right? Yeah, I had two albums with Third Man. And then um, for this third one, they're still doing my, they're pressing the record at their pressing plant in Detroit, which I think is really cool. Yeah. I just had the opportunity to Loma Vista was like there and ready. And I wanted to get this out actually last spring, but then I got pregnant. So (laughs) it's just taken a while to to get it out. Um, did, Did you make the album while you were pregnant then? Yeah. I started making it in December of 2018. Mm-hmm. This is going to sound like an odd question, but you've got such a powerful voice. Does it? Does being pregnant affect how you sing? Does it affect you physically in a way? Well, you know, early on when I was in the studio, I was I was wearing a baggy Fleetwood Mac t-shirt. You couldn't even tell I was pregnant, really. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but um, I worked on it for months and months. And as time went on, it, it did get harder to breathe. I mean, you've got child pushing on your rib cage and your diaphragm, but at the same time, I was being so good to my body and I was like working out and sleeping, you know, eight, nine hours every night. And I wasn't drinking and I wasn't smoking any weed. And I felt like I had incredible control over my voice where I was like, oh, I think I gained a few notes up here in my head voice. Mm. So I, I felt like it benefited me in a way. And I was even, I performed just a few nights before I had Ramona. I sang with Mavis Staples. I mean, I was massive and it was harder to sing at that point, but. Right. Well, that's not too intimidating being on stage with her. (laughs) She's so nice though. And she just was like, had her hands on my stomach. She's like, I'm going to be the godmom. Oh, that's nice. She's like, I don't have babies anywhere of my own, but I got babies all over the world. I'm a godmother to hundreds of babies. You can name your baby Mavis if you want. (laughs) (laughs) So it was incredible to be up there with her. And she was grabbing my arm and helped lead me on stage. Like it was, it was something else. It was her 80th birthday with the Ryman. And your, your daughter's middle name is Lynn, isn't it? And that's for? That's for Loretta. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now are you friends with her? I am. I am. I am. Was Talking to her daughter when Loretta's last album came out, she fell ill. And so they asked me to come up to Ernest Hub Record Shop and do a little interview and kind of talk about her and mm-hmm. um, sing a song for her. And I was pregnant at the time. I had just found out. I hadn't told anybody. And I was talking to her daughter, Patsy, and I just started kind of picking her brain. I was like, you didn't ever like present your mom because she was on the road all the time, did you? She's like, oh, no, we, we never knew any other way. Mm. You know, it was just daddy was home and he took care of us and mommy went out and made the money. And sometimes we'd go on tour and it was great. She's like, are you thinking about having another baby? I was like, oh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, a couple of weeks later, Loretta called me and uh, I told her at that point. And she's like, well, I tell you what, you can use Lynn as a, as a middle name. It's a boy or girl name. I give you the blessing and I hope you have. I hope you have five more. She's like, you can do it. (laughs) I'm like, no, I'm done. (laughs) Uh, You know, what a lot of fans loved, your first couple of records, um, you had like a kind of pitch perfect 70s Nashville sound. I don't want to confine it just to that, but you you had the kind of Telecaster, the bright Telecaster, the the pedal steel, you had a great band. Um, So I was a little unprepared for this new album, which first of all starts with this beautiful little piano part by Tom Petty's collaborator, um, Ben Montage. How did, first of all, tell me how it came about that you recorded the album the way you did and what you were thinking about when you recorded this album. Well, obviously country music, I think it always goes through these kind of resurgencies where it becomes really, you know, popular and um, like it becomes fashionable, like both in just, what people are wearing, but also in people trying to have that more traditional sound. And once the mainstream Nashville kind of caught on to what the underground was doing, and once they started to mimic that and regurgitate it, I wanted to jump ship. And there's a lot of things about the country music industry that I don't agree with, that I've never agreed with. And I just wanted to 
try to get away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, the sexism, the racism, and the, just the overall bullshit politics that comes with it. And it's like, you speak out about one thing that they don't like, and then they blacklist you. And, and then, you know, when you die, like with Merle Haggard or something, they're like, Oh, well, we're going to tribute you anyway. So I wanted to get out of that. <laughs> and I wanted to, to make something completely different because I just, I see a lot of singer songwriters, a lot of people get into the habit of like making the same album with the same themes like over and over again. And I just didn't want to become stale in what I was doing. And I've, I've always loved rock music just as much as I've loved country. And that's why I think people like Neil Young, Linda Ronstadt, people who skirted the line of both and never were confined to a genre. That's Mm -hmm. the kind of career that I want to have something that outlasts like the fad of just, just a genre. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's one of those albums that, like lots of people do their California album or their different kind of album. Uh, but your album, it just doesn't, you can hear influences here or there. I think particularly um, Letting Me Down, the, I think the ghost of Tom Petty kind of hovers over that one in a good way. Yeah, um, <laughs> thank you. But, you know, there's that old line about originality is when people can't figure out your sources or something like that. I like that. Um, I kept thinking, I kept thinking, oh, I think I know what she's doing, but this, the sound of it is really quite something. Thank you. You know, like Hey Child, I could see a lot of people doing it as a big kind of gospel number. And you sort of go there, but you don't. It's just, it's really interesting combination of things. What were you listening to? What were you thinking about? Um, well, you definitely said Tom Petty and uh, mm-hmm. Heartbreakers, Fleetwood Mac. That was like the kind of the overall thought. And sprinkle in some Bruce Springsteen. Maybe the Pretenders. Hey Child, I think, was our most Stones-influenced song. And we wrote that song almost maybe eight to nine years ago. And we were just super into the Stones. And um, Sturgill was like, what happened to that Hey Child song you used to play? And I'm like, oh, man, I've already recorded that. I don't I don't want to do that song. I don't you know, feel connected to it. And I had 16 other songs that I mean, ended up recording 16 songs, but I was like, all right, you're right. No one's heard it. Let's give it a shot. And, uh, everybody on the session was like, this is a killer song. I really wanted, you know, with the background vocals, I wanted to get that like Mary Clayton, give me shelter kind of like vibe going at the end. Oh, Um, okay. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think the fact that like, maybe because I am a woman, like doing the stones, like people aren't, like, oh, where, where is this? It's not like if I was just maybe directly pulling from Amy Lou Harris or Loretta Lynn, like I have in the past. I think that's more easy to pinpoint. Right. Um, can I ask you about a couple of the songs that I thought were just standouts? And you just mentioned one, uh, Stone Me. Yeah. Where did that come from? Well, my husband threw me the title. He's like, hey, I had a song title I thought you should write to. And I was like, okay, what is it? He's like, Stone Me. Right. It's like, okay, I know you're coming from. <laughs> and I think he wanted some kind of like last dance with Mary Jane or like, let's get to the point, throw another joint, you know, like just like a stoner anthem. And I tried to write it like that and just nothing came out. And then him and I had an argument actually when I was on the road and he called me a bitch. <laughs> and so I wrote, 
I wrote stone me and I just, I typed it on my phone in my notes and I like, it was just a poem and I sent it to him and he's like, Oh, that's good. And then he sent back like two hours later, he sent back the melody and was singing my words in it. Wow. And so he got a co-write on a song that was like about him. Nice. But like I said, you know, with like some of my songs being about two different people, it was like, I started writing it about him. And then I deflected my anger towards this like hack journalist that writes like these smear pieces on me. And so it kind of became about this, like this blogger that I have a lot of disdain for, but um, okay. yeah, it's a, it's a combo song. Well, I'm not going <laughs> to say anything bad about you now. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to show up <laughs> in the next album. Um, and I mentioned Hey Child, which I think is just stunning, and I keep listening to it. Tell me about that one. Where did it come out of? I mean, around the time that we wrote it, it was after my husband and I had lost our son. Mm-hmm. And we were hanging out with a couple bands, and all of us would play the five spot together in our respective rock and roll bands. This band called The Lonely H that had just moved here from Portland they were a little bit younger than us and we started hanging out with them and like partying a lot. And there's a lot of drugs going around that scene at the time. And so a lot of those lyrics are kind of about how everybody was more or less had like a death wish and just, but it, it was such a, such a different time because there was something really exciting happening. There were a lot of really good bands and you knew that it wasn't going to last that way forever. We were all partying like we had made it, you know, like we were partying like we were the Rolling Stones, but everybody was like broke and throwing in like $4 for a bottle of like benchmark whiskey and getting blind drunk probably four or five nights a week. Um, That's around the time that Hey Child was written. Okay. You know, you mentioned the loss of your son, Ezra, uh, and, you know, you've had other losses. A lot of your songs are about loss. Um, in fact, even your songs are, they're about success or about loss, like Twinkle Twinkle or Prisoner of the Highway. Uh, do you just, is that kind of the way you see the world? I'm a glass half empty kind of girl, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> um, I... You know, I, I do try to find the good in, in the situation. And I, I found myself recently really trying to keep a positive attitude about, you know, well, something bad in my life. Every time something bad happens, something good does always come out of it. But I do like the the melancholy, like a sad song in a major key or a major key song with really sad words, like a little pain. It's like a happy song, but I just never like songs that are like all one way or the, you know, just Mm -hmm. how much is that doggy in the window kind (laughs) of, you are my sunshine. That's a good song though. That's a bit Loretta Lynn and Merle Haggard. That's kind of the way they did it. It can be in there. Yeah. I mean, it can be sprinkled in there, but I, I've always found myself attracted to, darker lyrics. I mean, I I loved Johnny Cash growing up. I loved his attitude. He, he didn't care what anybody thought. And he had kind of this like chip on his shoulder. And, you know, even after he became successful, he was still singing the song of the working man and, of you know, 
I mean, the, the whole story of man in black and just people who, who still carry that burden. I, I still feel for people that are in a bad situation right now, you know, even though I'm very lucky, I have to remind myself and, and do what I can to help people that are not as fortunate because I've, I've been there. Mm-hmm. You know, Johnny Cash wasn't really in Folsom prison. Um, when you write your songs about your weekend in prison, that's the real thing. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like I learned a lot that weekend because I was seeing women that were in there for much longer than me. And when I wrote the verse about the girl who was in the cell with me, she would get up in the morning and I would see all the women line up and get their paper cups and swallow their pills. And, you know, basically she's like, Oh, you just should tell them that you were like are coming off of heroin because then they'll give you pills and you can sleep all the time. And I just had so much compassion for, for what I saw. And, you know, like, thought to myself, I can never come back here. I'm, I'm not going to find myself back in this position. And so I really did get sober and pull my life back together because I was in a really dark mental space. Like just, you know, I, I really debated checking myself into a mental institution. I called a friend of mine who had been through AA. She was much older than me. Her name was Roy Ann. She used to hang out with Towns Van Zandt and sing with him back in the day. And she was sober and she's like, whenever you're ready to quit your rowdy ways, you give me a call and I'll get, I got a chip for you, you know? And I called her and I was like, I think I'm going to check myself into a a mental institution. She's like, don't do it. She's like, they'll have your name forever. It'll be a mark on your, on your record. And you just, if you can work through it, you should. But then of course I, I went out and I, I drank and, and drove my car stupidly. I did try to call a cab, but they never came. And I hit a telephone pole in East Nashville, less than a mile from my house, right in front of two police officers at about two in the morning. And I tried to outrun the cops because I had weed on me. I had a pipe. I had booze in the car and I had been drinking for like six hours. And, um, I did not obviously outrun them. I eventually pulled over. I thought maybe I could pull into a driveway and turn my lights off. Like maybe I can get all the way home, but they got right up on my ass and I pulled over in front of a Baptist church and walked the line in the rain and failed. And it was humiliating. I mean, I had a a young son at home and at that point I just knew I had to quit being a deadbeat and and focus on my goal again. Mm-hmm. So is music still important to kind of keeping you centered and focused? Oh, without a doubt. I've been feeling more depressed in the past two months, as I'm sure everybody in the entire world is feeling. And I've, even before the pandemic hit, I was just kind of feeling like some postpartum depression. And I was really looking forward to getting back out on tour. I thought, you know what? I just need to get back to myself and Mm -hmm. get back to my work. And this album's going to come out. Everything's going to be fine. And then when this hit, I just started feeling really hopeless. But I, you know, I have two kids to take care of. And 
I get up in the morning and I brush my hair and I fix myself some eggs. And I do typically put a record on because whether it's a sad song that I'm listening to or a happy song, it's just good to have those feelings with music kind of playing in the background. And I feel like I've kind of fallen back in love as a listener, you know, because there's not a lot to do. It's like, oh, I can really fully immerse myself into where the song wants to take me. And what have you been listening to in particular? Well, I've been listening to every Bob Dylan song that he's been putting out. I've been listening to the new Lucinda Williams mm-hmm. a lot. I adore her. Um, so as far as you know, new music that's being released, oh, and Fetch the Bolt Cutters by Fiona Apple. I've been a huge fan of hers for a long time. Every day, every day is something different. I'm just trying to, you know, think about starting to write again myself. And I'm going to really throw myself into recording a lot of music because I, I can't travel and I can't play songs. And I think what's really inspiring about the Fiona album, the Fiona Apple record is just that how long she was making that and how, you know, she just focused all of her energy into that. And I, I think that there's, a lot of people that are um, hopefully writing their true feelings and, you know, getting back to the core of who we are as people. Mm-hmm. So what's it like to think that there are many, many people out there who are getting through this, listening to your music? That's, that's a good, that's a good feeling. I, I think I, I've still, I don't really see myself as that successful. I don't know. I don't know why, but I feel like, I spent so much time like playing dive bars and clubs and I even wrote about it in stone me, you mm. know, um, I won't forget what it's like to be poor. I could be there again. That's for sure. And then here I am like, okay, there goes my main source of income touring and not like, you know, I'm trying to say any poor me thing cause I'm, I'm doing fine, but I, I never wanted success to change who I am at the core. And so it is nice, you know, and my husband like reminds me, he's like, you got a lot of people out there that enjoy your gift and it's a gift to both you and them. And, you know, he tries to, to both, you know, keep me grounded, but also make me realize what, what I have. And I, I am grateful that, that people are, are listening and I just can't wait to get this new record out. <laughs> I just can't wait. You really are from the, you really are from the Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> I can't enjoy this. <laughs> it's true. Well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great. Thank you for asking great questions. That doesn't always happen. <laughs> and before we go, we wanted to share a quick interview Bruce did with the Uncle Margot mention. Here's legendary country songwriter Bobby Fisher. So what was it like in the set when you would, when you would go plug songs, what were you doing? You were going around to different labels? Yeah, wherever you could, you know, uh, I found out just how, how could you do it? Like, uh, you know, I used to drink beer with a guy that his wife was kind with what he's made and I'd give him something I wrote, you know, he'd take it and she'd maybe kind of be doing breakfast. And if it felt right, she would show him, show him the song, wow. you know, he'd that terrible or whatever, you know, but I end up with two Conway cuts, you know, just somewhere down the line. And, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, when Conway breathes life into a lyric, you really got something, you know? Yeah. I had, 
these two guys, great writers, Charlie Black and Austin Roberts, we were playing, playing poker one night and they said, uh, you know, we ought to work together. We laugh and have such a great time. We're all writers. So we, they said, you find an artist and we'll produce them free, write all the songs, and then you take over because we don't want none of the business part. So I said, oh, that's great. So we, I found this artist and I named her C.C. Chapman. It's a great singer. Sure. And uh, so then we uh, wrote all 10 songs. I got her on Curb Records. We put out a couple, and, you know, Mike Curb, it looked very tight fisted. He didn't put out much for promotion. And so uh, they called me one day and said, you, you don't have anything strong enough left in there. You know, we had these singles out and they, they're not going anywhere. And I said, oh, man, you should listen to them. And, and they said, no, no, let's move on. So anyhow, I was sitting there. I took three of them out, and uh, I went out to Reba McIntyre's office. Mm -hmm. Never had met her, but uh, as it turned out, this is how, to me, things happened. Did you turn right or left that day? I come in the lobby. I was going to give them to the uh, secretary, but this kid that I just met uh, at a little party, he was walking through the lobby. I said, would you hand these right to Reba? He said, yeah, yeah. So it looked good on him, you know. Right. So about a week later, she put two of them on hold, and she cut two of the three, you know. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and uh, down the line, of course, one of them was You Lie right. that we had written. each happened, you know. And uh, so then uh, somewhere down, when we went to number one, Curb Records called me and said, I didn't think it was a hit until I seen him selling You Lie t-shirts. <laughs> 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 so anyhow that was just pitching but i mean if i wouldn't have walked over there and that guy was walking through you don't have that you? yeah um, yeah so so far the secret to your success is you drink beer you go to parties and you play poker that's pretty well it yeah yeah, uh, yeah. So the world has changed you know I, i'm i know i hate that for people you know i've had uh uh 702 cuts on my songs wow yeah, I know. So it just most of them never come out, you know. Yeah. It's just uh, just shotgun, and a lot, a lot of them maybe they get a cut and they turn out to be something, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, I'm still writing. I got 11 songs going right now that I'm writing, so I'm still getting some things done, and it's really fun uh, doing it. If somebody likes your lyric enough, you know, to work with. It. Mm -hmm. And Margot, uh, we uh, Lori and I wrote with uh, her husband and her. Uh, way back and right now i've got one with her i sent her a lyric and she emailed me back she said she liked it and she's gonna work on it that's great he's he a very good talent she hopes you'll probably come up with him now she told us the story of when she first went there and played you some songs uh-huh now what's what do you remember of that meeting i remember you knew you knew that she was talented i didn't hear i, I heard really good songs for what they were Mm -hmm. uh, my thought always was, can can we get something in the charts to make some money? You know, because the yeah. charts is what it's all about. I didn't I, I didn't hear that, but I heard really great writing, and uh, it sounded like a uh, from years ago what the kind of music that I really liked. And but I thought, you know, you can always grow from that. I mean, she's that good, mm -hmm. and uh, you could always tell there was something there, but there wasn't a lot I could do. And so I tried to wanted to write with her. And we were with different, and we tossed stuff back and forth, you know. Well, she's doing great now. Yeah. Yeah, oh, man, she's doing wonderful, yeah. Well, and then later on, I didn't realize how much other talent she had. She, uh, you know, she did the Opry 
here quite a while mm. back. And uh, I mean, she goes over and plays the drums and the piano and everything else. Pretty amazing. Well, yeah, I'll tell you another pitch, another pitch story. Uh, my wife and I went to a Cracker Barrel one morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, so after we got done and we come out, she stayed in looking at the knickknacks. And I went out on the on the deck there, and this sports headline said this team had they got beat, but it said they hit the ground running. And my head said, "Hit the ground running when your heart gets hurt." And so in about an hour, I wrote, "Hit the ground running when your heart gets hurt." It's a nice corny little song, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I got with this Rick Giles, who's a great writer, and he cleaned it up. He added a Cajun yodel to it, and. Uh, then he was, the main thing was he was able to do a demo, didn't cost us nothing. He could put that picking on there and everything. Mm-hmm. And so then I would have the demo. It's my job then to go try to get it cut for us, you know? Yeah. And so I was down on Music Row there and I ran into Bud Logan. He's a great producer, musician. And he was producing uh, John Conley. And he was, I'd read where there was going to be a project for the new Opryland Records. Mm-hmm. I ran into Bud Logan. I know he's a real cut and dry guy. He don't want to hear anything that it's a waste of time. Yeah. And I ran into him. I was pitching cassettes, you know. And I said, uh, Bud, here you doing John Connolly for Opryland. He said, Yes, I am. And I said, I got four songs I'd like to see you. He said, Come over two. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. and so uh, two. I go over with my four songs, just him and I in the office, and I hand him the first one. He listened like all the way through. I thought, well, he must like it, you know. He said, a lot of talk about nothing. And so I handed him the next one. He said, uh, <laughs> next one he listened through. He said, yeah, yeah, like not for John. I handed him the third one. He said, uh, yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, not. And so I handed him Hit the Ground Running, the demo that I had gotten. And halfway through, he said, that'll be John's new single on Opryland Records. Wow. <laughs> And that's just how he did, you know. How was, first of all, how did you find Garth Brooks to do your demos, or how did he find you? I was writing with uh, another guy. Uh, let's see, there was three of us writing, and he said, next time you do some demos, you ought to use this guy that I'm writing with and, and, and maybe use him on a demo sometime. His name is Garth Brooks. And so I said, I'll have to try to line up with him. Well, I never did line up with him to write. But anyhow, then another guy named Charlie Quill and I wrote, uh, couple of songs. So uh, we just hired him just because Kent, Kent Blasey had told us to uh, try him. And yeah, and he come in and you know what I remember about him? He, he was in recording in the booth with that big cowboy I had on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're just in the control room, just me and him and the engineer. He's in there singing and we stopped everything. We're talking something over. He's looking like worried in there. He comes in and he took his hat off and stood in front of us. He said, I'll sing this over as many times as you guys want me to. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, it's not, the, you know, we're just studying it. And so, yeah, but that's how he is still, I think, you know. Can you, uh, could you tell he was going to be a star or did you, did he impress you then? Uh, not, I don't think exactly. I mean, cause when you're down here, you hear so many great talents. They're all, they could all make it, you know? Yeah, you look at the ones that are not very good that have made it. It's just you know, there's lots, of, so many more that are great talent that didn't make it. What's that? Then what do you think separates? Is it is it as you said, just luck? Luck. People who make it. People who don't. Luck. Yeah. And you know, and then it gets down to maybe it's a great voice, but 
did you get the right song? Did you get, did, you know, did Kenny Roger get the gambler right at the right time? Or, you know, mm-hmm. the gambler had been cut like a couple of times before Kenny ever got it. Right. But it was that production. So there that entered into it was the right production that he had around it. You know, mm-hmm. Larry Butler produced those. I don't know how people plug songs. Like, yeah, you must, been, you must have been very sure of yourself and very optimistic that you could do that. I was sure of the songs, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how many names you're familiar with in country music, but, uh, you know, I've had maybe four Roy Clark cuts. and I know Roy Clark. Yeah. Two Lee Greenwoods, uh, mm-hmm. two Rebus, uh, two Charlie Prides. Uh, I mean, just names that you think, I would have sit back and think, oh, man, if they'd just say hello to me, you know? Yeah. You were fair and young, didn't you? You've had a lot of. I had a couple of Farron Youngs, and what a nut he was. Was he a nut? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Egotistical, but fun. Him and I got thrown out of place one time, which was our own fault. But, yeah, he got, he was always getting me in, in trouble. Yeah, and here's another thing. I got, I guess you can't see it. This here. I'm going to try to hold this up. Is, oh, is this the guitar? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then here's the back. So this is all, what do you, you use like an etching tool and put their names in it? Yeah, it's like one of them, like a dentist thing, you know. Uh, yeah. I started out with a, uh, an ice pick where you had to try to scratch in your hand. It killed your hand finally, but trying to get it in there, you know. And so I bought one of those little engravers. So now everybody can put them in. Anyhow, so let's see, I was going to tell you, 260 names on the guitar. And I mean, it's names that are just, you know, Chet Atkins is on there. Yeah. Uh, Garth Brooks, got God bless you, Bobby, on there, and just on and on. Just wow. Greatest names. And a lot of people you, you'll never hear of, you know. Mm-hmm. I heard Margot Price is on there. Margot's on there. Jeremy, her husband, is on there. You oh, bet. fabulous. Had to have him on there. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, good to talk to you. I, I just appreciate you guys so much doing that. Thanks to Margo Price for taking the time to chat. Make sure to look for her new album when it drops, and you can check out all of our favorite Margo Price songs by heading to brokenrecordpodcast.com. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel. You can subscribe at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mila Bell, Leah Rose, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. 
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.